Hi, everyone. Welcome to Turning a Moment into a Movement. I am your host, Jay Love. I represent the Justice for Gerard movement. Gerard is my son who was wrongfully convicted of a crime, innocent, and served two years in the Michigan Department of Corrections for a crime that he didn't do. So um, through that journey, birthed this moment, turning, turning a moment into a moment. Um, and we come here every Friday to educate and to motivate and to teach you guys about wrongful convictions, how easy they happen. They can happen to anyone at any time. Um, Gerard um, is, is um, an example of many Gerards that are uh, wrongfully convicted and some that are still in prison. So we just come here to educate our community. We want to make sure my goal is to make sure that no one goes through what I went through and to help those that are going through it. So thank you for um, joining us. Today, um, we're going to speak about and talk about um, accountability and oversight in regarding to the police. And so before we get to that, and that conversation is going to be led by our one of our panel members, uh, Alexandria Hughes. And but before we get started, I want to um, let the panel come in and uh, welcome them in and allow them to introduce themselves to you. So I'm going to bring you in the panel. Hello, Attorney Hugo Mack. Well, hello. Can you hear me, J. I hear you great. Okay, thank you. you know, thank, thank you for being patient with me, Jay Love. We're gonna we're gonna get this together. You know, you <laughs> sound good. Attorney, you okay. go back. Okay. Well, my name is my name is Hugo Mack, a proud member of the State Bar of Michigan. Uh, I have become involved with a movement to address a population of victims. These victims are the worst kind of victim in our society because they're victims by the state. You see, it's one thing to be victimized by somebody, you know, in a parking lot or somebody stealing your property. It's another thing to have the government that you support with your tax dollars and prepared to, in certain circumstances, be in the military and give your life for to have that government victimize you, to pay for your own imprisonment, to pay for your own scorn, to pay for your own derision, all at the hands of quote-unquote justice. So the victims I'm talking about are the wrongfully convicted and the overly convicted. And so I've dedicated my life, having gone through a wrongful conviction, paying a debt I did not owe, and regaining my law license, the first time it's ever been done in the state of Michigan, in my situation, to address the men that I left behind and the thousands of other men that I know are within the Michigan Department of Corrections that should not be there. So I'm proud to be on this panel. I'm proud to be a part of this with our illustrious leader, Jay Love, to keep on fighting for the people that have been wrongfully convicted. And I'm going to send a message to anybody who's listening who thinks, well, that ain't no big deal. Well, say that after it happens to your family members. Say that after it happens to somebody you love. Say that after somebody is killed or gets COVID or some other disease inside the penitentiary, okay? Because there is no death penalty in the state of Michigan, all right? 
So anybody who goes to the penitentiary, if you put them men and women in there where there's COVID, there's uh, tuberculosis, you know, there's pneumonia, and then you're giving them very poor health uh, uh, aid, which is chronic, by the way, within the Michigan Department of Corrections, you are sentencing those people to death. Oh, yes, you are. Oh, yes, you are. Yes, you are. So I've dedicated my career. Um, thank you, God, and Jesus Christ for bringing me back. And so I'm proud to be here, J. Love. Attorney Hugo, Matt, before we even go any farther, some of you said um, resonated with me. Um, the health care inside the Michigan Department of Corrections. Um, my son, who was there, who suffers from severe Crohn's disease, um, he did get COVID. He did get COVID. Uh, and so um, not only fighting for him to get um, the treatment that he needed for the severe Crohn's disease, on top of that, you had to fight um, the system just to get treated for COVID as well. So you're right. Um, it's a big deal, and we should all be concerned because it could be any of us at any time. So thank you, Attorney Hugo Matt. So next, we're going to bring on Rebetia. <laughs> well, hello there, everybody. I'm so blessed to be here today. Just, just glad to, to experience this forum and come together with like minds. Jay Love, thank you, thank you, thank you for the Justice for Gerard movement. Uh, because in every in life, we we want to do this. You know, they say. When you have lemons, make lemonade. Yes, ma'am. You know, uh, so we're taking a, a, a moment and we've turned it into a movement. And mm. uh, thank you for spearheading this because this is at the divine time. This is the right timing. The climate is ready for change and so excited about the change that is happening, not only in the communities, but right here in our minds and our spirit. And the change is for us to begin to take our life, take our families back, take our health back. I am Reverend Tia Littlejohn. I uh, do a lot of work in the community, working with Michigan Social Justice Networks, uh, G100, One, Oneness and Wisdom, Women's Organization, National Women's Organization, Health and Wellness, and a minister. And every day I do behavioral intervention. <laughs> Which brings me to our topic today. I always say, I just believe that our leaders, our civic leaders who say that they are here to serve, they need behavioral intervention because they need to be held accountable to their words and for their actions. And this is not a time for us to hide our head in the sand and push things under a rug and act like it's not there. The elephant is in the room. It is big. It's not even pink anymore. It comes in multicolors. It is able to be seen. And it is called racism. It's called discrimination. It's called inequity on all levels. It is called social injustice. And so I want to thank you because we are here to educate and to help people make a change, make the change individually first. Mm -hmm. Hold yourself accountable. Exactly. And now it's time for us to hold our leaders accountable. Exactly. 
Thank you, Ravatia. Thank you. So we have our, our special guest. And, well, he's he's like a our family member as well. <laughs> Hi, how are you, Mr. Abdul Hakim? Alhamdulillah, I'm good. Hi, Jay. Thanks for having me, Brother Mac, Reverend T. I'm glad to see you all again, and I'm happy as ever every time. To, and I'm 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 uh, I feel a privilege to be on the forum, and I thank you. I thank you for all that you're doing, and um, to keep this in the forefront about the wrongful conviction movements and um, official accountability. Um, I, I probably have, uh, didn't introduce myself for those who are here for the first time. I'm a paralegal. I've been, um, I, I specialize primarily in um, um, uh, civil litigation, uh, the wrongful conviction stuff I uh, do on my own time because it just, it just drives me to repel. So <laughs> here I am and um, I like today's topic and we're ready to go. Yes. And so before we get started, Trisha won't be here with us today, but that's because she is being honored <laughs> She for um, a humanitarian award of the year 2020 by the um, AME Community Grant, Browns Chapel AME Community Grant. And so um, not only she's being honored, the work that she does through Survivor Speak, is being honored. So, congratulations, Trishay. Uh, yes, congratulations. Yeah, so you you deserve it. Well all deserved. Time. Yeah, you do. All yes. <laughs> and we, you know, we're with you. <laughs> so, yes. So next, we're gonna bring on our speaker for the day. Um, let's just bring her on. Hi, Ali. Hello, hello. How are you guys? How are Good. you? Good. How are you? Doing good. I could be here. And congratulations, Trisha. Yes. yes. So before we get started, introduce yourself. Yes, I'm Alexandria, community activist, also community organizer. I work in the mental health industry, um, behavioral and uh, the HR side as well. Uh, and I'm honestly happy to be here to discuss a really important topic. Um, something every community I, I feel should discuss and even ourselves. Exactly. So I, I remember last year, I think it was September or something, you were in Vegas um, for, um, could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes. Um, so I was in, uh, it was actually Tucson, um, Arizona. I was in um, for okay. the a National Association of Civilian Oversight of Law Enforcement, um, NACOL for short. I had their national conference um, in Tucson. I attended that last year and um, there is where, you know, I heard from a lot of people involved in independent civilian oversight of the police, of uh, prisons, um, community organizers, lawyers. Um, you know, these were, there were elected officials there as well. Um, everyday people also. Um, it was centered around uh, how accountability could look, um, independent accountability with binding power, how it should look, the ethics of it, the difficulties that you face with it, and um, strategy on how to do it in your community. Wow. Um, so go ahead and take over. <laughs> all right. Uh, <laughs> All right, so uh, before um, 
discussing police oversight specifically, um, I want to broaden this discussion and talk about accountability in lo local governments and communities. Um, so civilian oversight panels, they're intended to give voice, of course, to community members. And this is for um, anyone who's new to this um, and who don't know and those who do. Um, it's created to give voice to community members and enhance transparency and accountability through an independent review and investigation of harmful actions inflicted on another being. Um, oversight, um, you know, oversight can exist within any type of organization. Um, some form of harm and conflict will always exist in our society, but how we address and prevent it is another thing. Um, and that needs to change. Uh, that can happen through healing. To me, I see um, a big need for healing to happen. And healing to me can happen through how we, how we communicate with each other through society, how we treat each other, but healing can also happen through policy change. Um, I, I feel like our view on policy change needs to be bigger. It, it shouldn't be so uh, subjective. It can include healing. Um, and in order for healing to happen, accountability has to. So I'm gonna talk about some steps in uh, the process of, of, of getting an oversight, oversight and what it all is. So, um, a lot of this information today will come from um, the NACOL National Organization of Civilian Oversight Law Enforcement, also from research I've done, um, life experience, and information organizers um, from local groups, you know, have shared with me. So a first step for, step for oversight is uh, it's important, um, an important first step towards police accountability and transparency, transparency in our communities is oversight. So it must be proactive, um, not just reviewing misconduct and complaints, can include independent analysis of police data related to abuse of force, stop and frisk, or other procedures, financial auditing and recommendations, um, review of police policies, independent investigations, and proposals to address systematic issues and more. Um, so an example of proactive oversight, uh, say Denver, Colorado, um, Aurora, Colorado as well. Um, so Denver, Colorado's oversight structure includes four departments. Um, so there's the independent oversight monitor, right? And then uh, these departments consist of outreach teams to the youth, outreach teams for adults, multiple policies and policy analysis, um, senior deputy monitors and office staff you know, proactive in terms of not just addressing adults and incarceration, but we're also addressing um, the youth and, and how the youth is policed as well. We can look at school resource officers. We wanna eliminate those too, right? We want there to be more care versus criminalization in schools and having that proactive team of not just this board, but <laughs> thinking broader, bigger, um, being proactive. So. That's one example, but an, another big thing you need to be is independent. So must be an independent authority, um, not subsidiaries of police departments they oversee. Um, must be independent from political processes um, and independent and permanently secure financially. Uh, it has to be an independence of voice, oversight, 
not should not keep secrets of law enforcement. Um, has to be individualized, uh, community driven. Oversight should be conducted in part or in whole by the people, and it must impact policing in their impact the policing in their communities. So a big thing is to it for it to be empowered. So to have that binding power, that you know, um, subpoena power. So subpoena power, subpoenaing, and uh, also um, statewide uh, repeal of laws that prevent public access to uh, publications of public records and discipline, other matters of public concern. Um, but the final decision you want to have the disciplinary power um, in these matters. Um, on use of force, recruiting practices, and creating policies. Also being transparent um, is a big thing because you want to share that information with the public. And uh, depending on the laws, union laws, that can kind of hinder things. So research is a big thing to look into. Um, whether there is a uh, um, police bill of rights is one of them, one law that may hinder. But there's other ones, but you should just really do your research when it comes to transparency, because uh, they, they might try to get you. Um, so financially, and administrative support is another big thing. There's been a lot of oversight that's existed, existed throughout history, and they, uh, you know, went away because of funding declining, not having enough money and having this big caseload and just being overwhelmed. Um, but you also want to have alternative uh, processes. Um, so civilian oversight faces a lot of hurdles in the U.S. due to overwhelming protections. Law enforcement officers have in included statutory process procedural guarantees when faced when disciplinary or firing and no other public office enjoys that, of course. But there's qualified immunity and more um, that can hurt you. And um, one thing to avoid is to not... Uh, like pitfalls to avoid. Um, oversight is not a one-step solution for all policing issues. Oversight is not solely reactive. And there's a few ways that can look. Um, what I like to call it, call one of these ways is these block, blockbuster cases. So we see things that um, happen in the world, like Derek Chauvin was convicted. You have Kim Potter. Um, Derek Chauvin was convicted because of murder of George Floyd, we all know harm he inflicted, and then we see the Minneapolis police and Potter uh, found guilty of manslaughter. Um, but in November last year, Aurora, Colorado, officially created its police oversight board through a consent decree. I'll explain what that is a little later. But in their words, they claim to have created it to repair trust and confidence. Um, but this was largely in response to the murder of Elijah McClain, reactive. And you don't want to be reactive. Um, things will just keep happening and you'll have to keep putting fires out and that doesn't, we want to be proactive to prevent these things from happening. Um, another way that you can, another pitfall is just being a review board. Now, our civilian oversight review board um, indicates that the only power an oversight body has is to review individual complaints. It leaves out the ability to independently investigate rather than relying on police department's records and to engage in focusing on systematic problems. So uh, those are a few, but um, three other big things is to not have oversight housed 
um, by police departments. Um, you know, this has to be independent in every way you can think of, um, just because you want true accountability to be achieved. Right. So yeah. do they, that's, it kind of sounds like we have the, uh, the last one you spoke about, <laughs> the, where they don't really have, they review everything, but there is no independence. Um, and when we're talking about oversights, um, committees and boards, um, and everything is ran by the, the police, they're like, um, reviewing, where, investigating themselves. Where are you, uh, where, um, what city are you talking about? <laughs> Detroit. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh, God. Mr. Abdul, would you find that to be true? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, we, we also have a, a police board of commissioners, right? That's supposed to serve like as an oversight, right? Aren't they made up of uh, part citizens and some, um, the Detroit Police Board of Commissioners, they're the watchdog, if you will, but they don't have much teeth. They don't have much enforcement powers, but I like, I like the idea of uh, being able to have subpoena powers, a truly independent board of review. I, I have never, I, I haven't been to the Detroit Police Board of Commissioner meetings in years, and I, I found it as a waste of time because it's just a, a place to air your grievance, but I don't know that they have any powers against the police for misconduct, or do they? I don't know. I, again, I haven't I've, been involved. Uh, I've, I've um, you know, actually at the conference, a lot of them were there, if I'm being honest. Like a lot of them, and they are part of the organization, like members of it. Mm -hmm. So from what I know, they are pretty on board with NACO. <laughs> I, I don't know their, what their progress is on getting there, but a mm -hmm. ton of the members are there. Um, I would want to see them have more teeth, if I'm being honest. It's, it's a majority black city. So I, I really wonder if um, they, you know, want to have more power. I mean, you know, so I would definitely watch that because they, it was a lot of, a lot of Detroit people there. <laughs> and it made me like, oh my God, I was happy, but also wondering um, where they want the commission to go. Um, Tony Hugo, Matt, do you, can you speak on that? Well, I tell you, um, a, a friend of mine and Jay Love has got a, a, a show that comes on like from nine to 11, <laughs> um, Monday, Monday through Friday. And, uh, you know, what the hell? I'll tell you the name, <laughs> Sam Real. And so, so, so he has had on there, uh, I don't know if he said Willie Brown was his name or something like Willie that. Burton. Willie Burton. Okay. And apparently there's just been hell breaking loose. I mean, uh, on that, on that, that, that police commissioner's board and, uh, people being kicked out or being, had right. mics cutting off on them. And so they have no teeth. Know, I just heard I just heard what the brother said about a waste of time. It, it 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 almost seems it's so much internal politic going on. I'm questioning how much really is getting done. I mean, just as an outsider looking in. So and then see another thing along with what uh, Ali was saying, you know, th the problem comes down with a lack, in my opinion, of backbone by elected officials. Okay. Now, because all these boards, nobody just walks onto a board, they're like appointed to a board by the mayor or, or the chief of police or something. 
And these systems want to self-perpetuate. So before you have teeth, which is what we need, I know they're going to say the person's got to be trained. They've got to be a police officer. Uh, you know, they've got to have all this background in law enforcement. Well, you're, you're just putting a, a, a widget in a spot. You know what I'm saying? You're, 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 you're just changing widgets that are the same. So it, 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 is, a, it is a dynamic, but uh, I, I don't see much functioning with that police commissioner uh, board. In the yeah, I, I do wonder about it. And what, what was interesting, though, is when I was there and I was talking about Dearborn, they were well aware of, of Dearborn and not uh, <laughs> a lot of them were not fond of, <laughs> of Dearborn um, and disagree with how things are going. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, they, a lot of people were saying it's almost easier to not have an oversight structure already and to create a, one fresh than to re reform one and to change one. Um, because of the laws around it that already exist when it's already created. So, right. um, that sounds fascinating. I, I, cause I would have thought it was the other way around, but I guess that, that could be true. Yeah. You know, I was looking at, um, the fact that when it comes to the um, that board, as far as oversight, I mean, yeah, they, they don't have any teeth. And we have to look at why it was created. And that's what's mind boggling to me. It was supposed to be to supervise uh, that authority of the police. And I just question why you need police to supervise the authority of the police. Hmm. I mean, if it is supposed to be, it was supposed to be, the purpose was to have, um, so that the civilians would be able to participate in that structure. And clearly it, it's not doing what it was purposed to do. So I, I agree with you guys. We need to abolish it. Abolish the whole thing. And in, there needs to be a review board, yes. But it needs to be made up of citizens. Commission, yeah. Yeah, that, uh, what I do like about NACO is how they say it, it should not be housed by the police. Um, and they're national, on national level saying that. And that having that organizations like that, that can't be more, no more proof. It's all these educated people and people with life experience. Come on, like, we got to do better, you know? Um, what are y'all thoughts on, like, the first, that question there? Like, how would y'all want it to look in y'all communities, like, demographically, funding? Is that a question for us? Oh yeah, I'm sorry for y'all and for whoever is uh, an audience. <laughs> Go ahead, Reverend Tia. Well, look, they talking about defund the police. Just transfer some of those monies over to the to the people who would be supervising this. The people who would be in a part of this organization. That's a job. Clearly, it's a job because we have police who have overextended their power. And we have the lawsuits to prove it. 
and and demographically it needs to it needs to be an example of the citizens who are being served supposed to be served so it needs to represent the community and 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 we can't i mean that's and that's why i still say you know when when we back in the 70s had when uh coma young and the people who were voting back then had said if you live in the city you can work in the city and then now because of our little bougie behinds <laughs> we we don't overturn all that and so people are in civilian i mean that they are civil leaders these unity who are working in our community and they sometimes do not care about that community because they don't live there they don't live there they don't live there and and so we need to we need to change that that's why we had a court people probably don't remember we had a court Mm -hmm. that was the first thing to go when they made the change we gotta look at why something is look at the purpose of the thing we gotta stop just blanketly looking at our own gratification on where we want to live and we want to be able to work in bloomfield and still work in detroit but still live in bloomfield mm -hmm. you know so I, I nothing against Bloomfield, so I don't want nobody from Bloomfield to say, will you come and visit us out here? Yes, and I love you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Attorney Hugo, Matt. Well, let me say this. Part of the problem is, you know, the concept of states' rights and local rule has historically been used against people of color, okay? Uh, black people in, in, in this country, you know? that state's rights thing, let us handle our, our own situation. Well, now we're not able to handle our own situation, even even on a local level, because I, I'm not beating up on Detroit, but it's just that I seem to hear more about them with the police commission than I do other, other <coughs> areas. You know what I'm saying? So I, even on local control, I don't think the elected officials are really giving any teeth to any of these things. And I know that's kind of redundant, but the problem is we need some federal legislation from the top down because some of the grassroots things, the grass is rotted. I mean, it's in a desert, okay? It's in a desert, you know? Try throwing some grass seed out in Sahara Desert. Good luck with that. So what I'm saying is, is that the problem that we've got is when you've got people that are willing to stay on the sidelines and not enforce mandates on people that we elect to get federal legislation. You see, because if we had like the Attorney General's office and the Department of Justice empowered, you know, to enter into these consent agreements, under the last administration, they did away with that. Jeff Sessions strengthened the police. He didn't weaken them. You know, he made more mandates about uh, harassing and attacking people of color disproportionately you know, you know, with laws, he, they were like undoing everything President Obama tried to do, even with 21st century policing. Okay, so what I'm saying is, 
I, I'm all in favor of us working on a local level, but I'm telling you, we got to keep pressing this national debate to get some federal legislation where they can't just worm around it, you know, by 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 ineffective local local leaders. And I'm gonna say this one thing here in terms of Washtenaw County, I see a lot of window dressing. Okay, I mean, I see the sheriff. He's got one of his subordinates, a, a nice gentleman, you know, that is with like my brother's keeper and, you know, bring problems to us. But I don't see anybody getting around the unions, the police unions, the sheriff's union. Okay. You know, and like mm -hmm. Allie said, they've got police bill of rights. There's no question about that. You know what I'm saying? So um, we need national legislation. And I get, I, we just got to keep fighting it on both fronts, you know. To, yeah, to your point, um, yeah, that actually um, transitions us to the next part pretty good <laughs> um, on the, our uh, third slide. Uh, yeah, so through um, multiple ways that you get the police oversight, right? Like it happens multiple ways. So like you have the charter revision process, you have, um, what else do you have? You have it where it can happen through ordinance. Um, it can, and that's passed through city um, council. Um, for the charter revision, that you know, for those who don't know, the charter is a document that governs the city. And if that's revised, um, then you can put having independent civilian oversight commissions in the city charter documents that will be in the city docs forever because <laughs> those don't get revised easy, only by vote. Um, so you have that, or through ordinance passed by the city council, they control the budget, the money. So that's a big power if they pass it. Um, then you have through executive order that's passed by the mayor. I haven't seen that done too often recently, but it can be a powerful thing because the mayor, of course, doing it. But executive orders are used for other things. I've seen just not for this. Um, I've seen too often, at least recently. Then consent decree. What um, you were talking about, uh, and that I know is the most powerful tool, like you were saying. Um, and um, with a, a consent decree, um, you know, it being something writing by the court, approved by judges, becoming legal. Um, so like, I know um, this happens, like whenever the Department of Justice has like that reasonable cause that violations are happening, um, they obtain a court order to eliminate that pattern of practice. So um, this was even like, um, Trump did undo, like, having it, but actually, uh, April of last year, the current attorney general um, lifted restrictions that Sessions put in place. Um, and then right now, there's at least a dozen cities under consent decree. Some include Portland, Oregon, and Minneapolis, uh, Minnesota. What's interesting about Portland, though, um, it became a city under the consent decree several years ago, but after evidence revealed that after that the department, department admitted to officers were shooting many unarmed people and it agreed to um, a program of reform um, under, uh, you know, the consent decree, but they're not following it. Um, <laughs> so last year, uh, it was declared that Portland was failing to comply with the agreement and officers were using excessive force against demonstrators in the George Floyd movement. Um, so we're even seeing there how consent decree isn't enough there. Portland is still, officers are still doing things on our people. And that dissent decree wasn't working. It's been there for several years. So, you know, 
it's powerful, but it, it begs the question, like, we can't just be reactive, right? <laughs> we can't. Um, wasn't there a city council that um, made some, um, I can't think of what city that was, but they uh, made some reform, reformative measures for their police. I'm um, say, I want to say it was somewhere in New York. I, well, I know New York City and the qualified immunity. Um, Through the city council, that. right? Yeah, city council did that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Now that's major. That, that definitely is. Yeah, that's um, amazing. Um, but yeah, like um, I don't know it. Uh, a lot of people complain too about like funding, like saying they can't get funding for it, or a police department will say we we don't have the funding for the city. Like we have it for this, but not that. <laughs> you know, they're running out. And there's actually grants for that. You know, like you can apply for city grants, community policing grant exists. Like it, it's not something impossible that to do. Um, but you know, that's if they give you pushback. I know I've gotten pushback in that way about anything related to police, police change. Right, they give grants to uh, work overtime to be out here to harass people. There's grant for that. Um, they had something when the feds was here, they had a grant for that when they was doing, uh, what was that project called? Um, but they were just going around, you know, arresting people for gun charges and everything. They got grants for that. So mm -hmm. what's why that? Not for an independent oversight committee. Oh, true. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So I forgot about that. But like, that's, um, and I feel like that's having a consent decree is good, but like revising the charter too. Like, I think that's like a big way too because the charter sits there for like decades. Like, Pontiac has been there since what the eighties, and it, you know that hasn't undergone a revision process still. Wow. Um, in Mesa, Arizona, they put up a petition in twenty eighteen to have the city charter revised um, to get like binding power and disciplinary power for an oversight. Um, then last week, um, there was a news report for an officer in MISA. I think it was titled, it was Conduct, Conduct Unbecoming. Um, but the MISA officer named Drew Young violated department's policy at least 12 times in 13 years. And the MISA police department didn't fire him and they actually promoted him. This was an article that came out last week by 12 News. Um, so Officer Young was recommended to be fired three separate times, including by MISA Oversight Board, Review Board, mind um, you, not uh, commission. And then other city departments actually suggested that he be fired. He's actually being promoted. Um, <laughs> so this, this, these are the ways, reasons why oversight commissions are needed with finding power, reasons why that change petition existed, you know, three years ago in MISA because it's continuing. Exactly, because um, I hate to just keep on saying Detroit, but uh, again, in Detroit, where you have officers with 85 or 100 complaints that's getting promoted, um, with all of these complaints, where is the, and you have these boards, how, do, how does that, you know, it took a new chief coming in and saying, hey, we gotta do something about this. And get these people out of here, but 
I mean, you have these boards and these um, that's supposed to give oversight. How do these things not happen? Is it because they are um, investigating themselves? Yeah. That right there. Yes. <laughs> they, they, I couldn't hold it no more. They don't, they don't want to be investigated. And, and that's the problem. That is the problem in our leadership right now. The ego is so huge that they don't want to be wrong at all costs. You can look at any system and people do not want accountability because it means that they may have to be wrong. Mm -hmm. And then if you are wrong, then what? So, I mean, it's in everything. It's in absolutely everything. So if you do have a, a, a community board that is doing, you know, the revision part of the ordinance, you know, if they are coming together to, to look at everything. Now, what we need to show is economically how the city could benefit. You know, if if we say, well, we could we could possibly stop you from being sued so much if you knew <laughs> how to put how to arrest the right people and how to let the right people go, you could possibly save some money. I mean, this is like something very easy to me. Like I don't understand why nobody has said you may want to stop being sued. I wouldn't want to keep getting sued. Right. Mr. Abdul, what you got to say? That's a common sense approach. The problem is when 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 with police officers are indemnified. They're indemnified from personal liability. They get sued so much and they're and they're repeat offenders because the the way our laws work, again, they're indemnified. That means the city pays the judgment. There's no civil or criminal liability for these repeat offender officers who keep violating suspects and witnesses' rights. So to answer your question, this is why you have uh, these, these voluminous lawsuits. That needs to change. And that's not anything that a review board or a police commission can do. It's what our legislators and the courts can do and should do. And the perfect example is this uh, Officer Barbara Simon. Mm -hmm. And look how she had a 30 year span of violating suspects constitutional rights and extracted bogus confessions from them. Well, now it's all coming to to a head. She's retired now. Well, I don't know. She got promoted to the attorney general's office recently. I don't know if she's still there, but she's not the only one. There was Mike Russell, the officers on Kim Worthy's Giglio list. Mm -hmm. These officers had repeated patterns of violating suspects and witnesses rights. And they, it cost the city millions of dollars, and there was no accountability. That because again, those the officers don't personally pay those judgments. You, they don't give a damn. They'll be personally served, but because of their union contracts, they're indemnified by the city, and that's not something a review board or or board of police commissioners can change. That falls on our legislators and the courts. Qualified immunity is a court created immunity. Police officers have, you know, they enjoy qualified immunity to an extent. There are exceptions where they violate what is called clearly established constitutional rights. 
but uh, they're in, they're entitled to qualified immunity for you know for negligent acts and for ministerial duties the things they do in the official performance of their duties which okay is understandable but they always throw up the qualified immunity even in cases of misconduct and they over abuse it so the, that's a big change that needs to happen and let me add this we were, you go, you all were talking about the consent decree detroit was under consent decree if you remember, I think it was when, um, who was the mayor? Was it Archer for about 10 years? Detroit police violated that consent decree with, imp with impunity. One of the, I remember one of the terms of that consent decree was that for capital offenses like murder, Detroit police were required to re audio record interrogations. Time after time, they didn't do that. They were doing this, you know, this paper question and answer session like they've historically done and getting people to falsely confess. This was while they were under the consent decree. The consent decrees aren't worth the paper they're written on. They're just labels. Courts don't want to enforce them. When you, when you take the violation back to the court and say, here, they violated the consent decree. And let me tell you this. They violated the consent decree in Devontae Sanford's case. He was interrogated three times. But they only record the third. They only audio record the third interrogation. And this was why they, while they were under the consent decree. The first two interrogations, they didn't audio record it. They violated the consent decree because you know why? They prepped him for the final confession. Now that one, they did record. And it, mm -hmm. fell, on his, it fell flat on his face after like eight years of appeals. But the problem is the consent decrees, I don't have any faith in those. The, the federal courts don't like to be bothered. They don't like you to come back with, they don't enforce them. The other thing is police officers, you know, like I said, if I had my way, they'd be thrown in prison. Forget the civil liability. That's the only real deterrence to this. That's we have true. laws on the... Excuse it, like, me. Oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm like in agreement. I'm like... <laughs> we have laws. We have criminal laws that address this. And nobody wants to talk about putting these officers in prison. What those cops did to Devontae Sanford and Barbara Simon should, be, should have been thrown in prison. On our, under our state laws, it's called obstruction of justice, which is a felony. It's called tampering with evidence, which is a felony. Isn't that what all of these wrongful conviction cases, if you look at it, that's what the police did. It's all, there's also a felony called tampering with a witness. When you get a witness to falsely accuse someone, aren't you tampering with them? This is, this is a common sense approach. It's, it doesn't require much studying. We have criminal laws on the book to throw these cops in prison. But that's a taboo discussion. Nobody wants to talk about throwing them in prison. prison. But let me tell you this, even though they're union they can be criminally prosecuted. But the change, the, the, the change is not going to happen. And I don't know why the legislators, the prosecutors, and even some of the civilians, you know, they get the chills when you're talking about putting police in prison. I don't have a problem with it. Because if they if I did what they did, they'd be thrown the, they'd be they'd be charging me with obstruction of justice. Exactly. And they have done it. What, what Sergeant Russell did and, and James Tolbert did to, to Devontae Sanford was obstruction of justice. They should have been thrown in prison for it. There are criminal laws already on the book for that. There's perjury, suborning perjury. Yeah. That's a, that's a felony already under Michigan law. That's what these cops were doing by getting witnesses to falsely 
testify in court to identify people as being the suspect. That's a, they suborned perjury, and they did charge. Remember, Karen Plants, and and those inks. I think there were Inkster police officers. Well, they they charged them with what suborning perjury in that drug case. But it happens even in these murder cases. You know, my thing is this: you, everyone thinks that oh, you get justice because you get out and you can file your wicker claim. You're being shortchanged because the the dirty cop still has his or her job, and they're still interrogating people. Yeah. They're still Sergeant Russell was still interrogating people. We're going to talk about that in a minute because I, Sergeant Russell was still interrogating people for about 10 about eight, eight or nine years after what he did to Devontae Sanford. And Chief Craig refused to remove him from homicide until the federal court denied the city's motion to dismiss. He didn't make Kim Worthy's Giglio list until the federal court denied the city's motion to dismiss and the federal court blasted Sergeant Russell as the liar that he was. Mm -hmm. Wow. Attorney Hugo Matt. Well, you know, I don't want to interrupt Ali's presentation, so I don't you see, you know, excuse me for just being real, okay? I've been in the criminal arena courtrooms, you know, 40 years, you know, in and out the penitentiary. And elections have consequences, okay? And you quoted me one time, Jay Love, that we have become comfortably numb. In mm -hmm. the city of Detroit, I think in this last mayoral election, only like 17% of the people voted, something like that. 17% mm -hmm. of the people voted, okay? Mm -hmm. And so what I'm saying is, I mean, I'm going to tell you, uh, white world supremacy and the vestiges of slavery, they've worked a hell of a mojo on black folk, boy. I mean, they worked a hell of a mojo on black folk. I mean, you know, you know, you know, uh, Tarzan say back in deepest, darkest Africa, that's a bad juju they got going right there. And what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is, we got a bad juju on us. We really do. Because the truth of the matter is, the truth of the matter is, most crimes committed against blacks are by blacks. Most crimes committed against whites are by whites. Most crimes committed against Hispanics are by Hispanics. But let's take the whites, let's take the Hispanics, let's take the Jews out of it and focus on blacks, okay? And so what I see time and time again uh, with, with blacks as a people, you know, we tend to say, lock them up because we're tired of being victimized by crime. Okay, and it's almost made us insensitive, and I don't want to overgeneralize, but it's almost made us insensitive to the injustice of police because we want somebody to stop breaking into our house. We, you know, you know, we want our wives and our husbands to be able to go to the car without being scared of being carjacked. So, I mean, who do we have to call on? The police, all right? There's nobody else to call with the enforcement authority to come and get somebody who's trying to break into our house. So what happens with us, and this is why I think don't sleep on the former chief of police in Detroit running for mayor, don't, I mean, I'm governor, don't sleep on that man, don't sleep on that man. He does need to shave off with about four or 5% of the black vote in, um, in, in, in the state of Michigan, and that man could easily be the governor. And what I'm saying is there's a lot of support for somebody who's going to be quote-unquote tough on crime, but while they're being tough on crime supporting somebody, 
they don't realize these are the same people that are ultimately victimizing them. You understand right. what I'm saying? And, and the people they love. And it's like it doesn't hit them until it's their son or nephew or daughter that, you know, somebody, police officer going upside their head with a club. Then they realize the abuse. Right. Um, I'm still wondering, like, is he still running? Like, I'm so curious, and I haven't heard anything of the week. He's still running. He's a lot louder before he got to breathe. I think I heard the numbers, like, he's like 32%. I think he's Yeah. See, yeah, that's up there. That's scary. We gotta address this all 360 <laughs> degrees. <laughs> like what I do, like you know, like oversight is one thing, but having other services, alternative services, is is where we need to go too. What I do like about uh, Mesa, Arizona, um, they use funds from the CARES Act to put homeless people in hotels, which is what. Like instead of you know like Eric Mayor Eric Adams, who I'm seeing saying he's trying to get homeless people off the street, they can't be there, and it's very just messed up. Um, yeah, that man's scary. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, like things like that. Like they got they got like a what task force or or some kind of um, uh, commission or something to help homeless people like with what they have going on. And, and, and a large part of the people being incarcerated are mentally disabled people. A large part of that comp, that population comes from homeless people. And they just shouldn't, you shouldn't try to incarcerate homeless people. Um, so a lot of work to do, that's for sure. Um, one thing I do uh, want to talk about is uh, Fort Worth, uh, Texas. Um, so, I know Fort Worth is, is oh, and Ann Arbor. Um, so I know Fort Worth, Texas, they just uh, created their oversight commission um, December of last year. Um, so let me see here. Okay. Okay, yeah. Um, so they just put out a newsletter. Um, and uh, they started on um, what, November 31st. But like they say who they are, um, and they they say a lot of things that they're currently doing, um, and then they also um, talk about struggles that they're having, um, and then even more than that, um, just some of the policies that they're working on. And on their you know commission, it isn't. Now have yeah on their commission it isn't like former officers, <laughs> um, it's policy analysts. There's some interns there. Um, there's an administrative piece of it. Um, you know, there's engagement that happens between them and, and civilians. They have their own web portal. Their website and everything, government website, it's not linked to the police department, it's separate. You have to go somewhere separate for it. Um, so in every piece and every bit, it's independent. Um, I would look out for that one um, and how it's developing. And also Ann Arbor's, I think they started a couple years ago. Um, I had met the chair at the um, at the national conference, uh, you know, 
agrees with everything we're saying. So like, I'm, I'm real curious about where it's gonna go. Um, but yeah, I, I would like to see more of that in, you know, majority black cities. Chicago has one. I wish Detroit had one, I'm be real. I wish Southfield had one. <laughs> I do. It's because like, it's one thing to Ann Arbor have one, but it's Ann Arbor and it's like, I, I want to see that kind of stuff in um, places that for me. Um, yeah. I agree with you, Allie, because um, with the rate of these wrongful convictions, if if there's a, like a two, three year waiting list uh, for cases to be seen, wrongful conviction cases, or to be seen by CIUs or whatever, um, but there's no accountability um, behind this, you know, people being um, wrongfully convicted, then what is the purpose of these um, exoneration? Um, we need exonerations, yes, but we also need it to stop. And if you don't have accountability, if you don't have um, some kind of oversight that's separate from the system, then you continue the cycle of the things that's been going on 30, 40, 50 years. I mean, Mr. Abdul, you were just saying how someone that's 30 years, you know, people, uh, this one officer, she's been doing all these, um, or been getting caught up now, I guess, in all these wrongful convictions. Her name is Keith Thompson. We don't have anyone to tackle that part of accountability. So, and she's not on the prosecutor's giglio list. I find that rather curious. Despite that, the fact that there was a very lengthy Detroit news report about Barbara Simon, the exonerees know about Barbara Simon. Some of them are freed out here because of her acts. Yeah, I think that's Larry Larry Smith. Why not? Yes, and Mark Craighead. But mm. I noticed she wasn't on Kim Worthy's uh, Giglio list. Mm. And you know what's interesting? She put Sergeant Ru um, Officer Mike Russell on the Giglio list in December of 2020, and he was the officer who got Devonte Sanford to give a bogus confession. But what was interesting during the eight years as she fought the appeals to keep Devontae in prison, she defended Officer Russell and his interrogation tactics. And again, it was only after the federal court denied the city's motion for summary judgment and the judge found that Officer Russell was the liar that he is, did she have a, a I guess the light bulbs finally went off. She said, oh yeah, he's a liar. I'm gonna put him on the Giglio list. You knew that, you had all the evidence. You had all, you, 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 she's one of these convicted by any means. And it, it, it was a tragedy. It was a tragedy. My point is it didn't take her eight years to, to see that this officer was a liar and that he got this kid to bogusly confess. So it sounds like we need like something not localized, but state, um, like a state list, you know? So, because if you are fired from this, um, let's say, for example, Detroit, you can um, go work in Holland Park, and if, or if you fire from Holland Park, you can go work in Taylor. So they just bounce around. There's no, it should be a universal See, yeah. way of doing this. And the police union largely 
reason why they can go to other municipalities and work is because of that. Like the police unions um, allow that and uh, actually allow, yeah, yeah, they um, promote that. Uh, it, yeah, it's scary. Um, but even Tamir Rice, who, who killed him, actually did similar things in other municipalities at least eight times and went to other ones. And then that happened. Um, but if he would have been let go and not able to do that, if his records weren't allowed to be destroyed because the union allows that for records to be destroyed, um, then they're probably like, <laughs> it's pretty bad. Like when you start to look into this stuff, it, it's pretty sad. But that's largely why, like that state, I, I hear you, Jay, that state level change. Yeah. Yeah, I, uh, you know, it's, it's so surprising because if a psychologist... And I have known if they if they mess up with funds, if they uh, if you they lose get, their yeah you, they they lose their funding and they go to the attorney generals, you get on the list at the attorney general's level level. You cannot practice. You can't practice your anything, even if you are. Uh, a direct care worker and if you have abuse or neglect allegations against you okay now even if it's not if it doesn't if it's not true you know if it's questionable but if you make it to the attorney general's list you cannot help the mentally ill in the capacity as a direct care worker and that's that's you making 17 i guess sometimes 20 dollars an hour now i'm not sure but this is if you compare you have the police offers you have somebody who's working mental health it's not equitable is what i'm saying if you make it to a certain list because clearly it's saying that you are not properly doing your job. Then they say you can't. You can't work it in Michigan. Hmm. But as a police officer, you have immunity. That's a good example. <laughs> That's a good example. You know, the attorney general should have powers over over uh uh, police officers who abuse their who abuse the public trust who abuse their authority who abuse their power also yes and I yeah. think so there 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 there's this there is the power of the attorney general's office and like I said there's laws on the book that address this and there, there there's criminal laws that address what police officers do the same criminal laws they would throw at you and I if we if we if we did these things, obstruct justice and tamper with witnesses, which is what all these wrongful conviction cases are about. Police officers obstructing justice, tampering with, with witnesses, tampering with evidence. When you plant evidence on someone, that that's not a that is a crime. Exactly. Mm -hmm. well, how do you go back to work? <laughs> how do you get to go back to work in that capacity? You shouldn't be able to on a on a, a local level, on a state level. On a, I mean, all across the board, you should ever be able to work in no other state. <laughs> yeah, it's it's unconscionable for you, a police officer, 
for you to know you just got an innocent person to confess to a murder or any crime and to know that the real killer is still out there. Where is, where, where is your morals? As a police officer, where is your conscience? So you left the killer on the, the real killer on the street and you sent an innocent man to prison and there's your badge of honor. What, what the hell is wrong? What is, there's, there's something wrong with that. Because I'm a citizen in the city and I want to live in a safe city, but what I'm hearing in all these wrongful conviction cases, the sum result is someone who was innocent was sent to prison. And guess what? The real killer is probably still out here living among us. Right. Yeah. But then that goes to the conversation about quotas and, you know, numbers. And it's about that. It's not really about justice. It's about achieving a goal. You know, like it's um, <laughs> like like you're selling something, getting commission. You know, the the numbers they they want to increase their numbers. They want to look good for these numbers, and so and it's abuse. Yeah, you know, I, I, and I will say this. I'll be the first to say this. Even if someone is truly guilty. I firmly believe in the presumption of innocence until proven guilty because that is the beacon of our justice system. And you do your best to defend somebody, even if you know they're guilty. And if you have a problem with it, you just, you just back out of the case. But you, you um, even if someone is truly guilty, I'm against police misconduct, not yeah. just against the innocent, even against someone who's truly, who's truly guilty because our laws say those rights are ours. And you should not be beating the crap out of somebody or using shenanigans and, and, and lies to get them to confess, even if they're guilty. You don't you shouldn't do that because that's not honest police work. That's dirty police work. Mm -hmm. And I'll be the first to say I've been a victim of, of quite a few crimes in Detroit, but I have never taken the attitude that all the people are criminals. And I don't and I still protect our constitutional rights, our fundamental constitutional rights, the, the, the most the most important being the right to remain silent and the right to a fair trial. In all of these wrongful conviction cases, there was no fair trial. Even if those defendants were guilty, and I know there, there's two schools of thought on that. Some people say, well, a wrongful conviction doesn't necessarily mean they're innocent. Well, and then on the other hand, a lot of wrongful conviction cases, they were innocent. So take your pick. But the fact of the matter is, it was because of dirty police work and dirty prosecutor work because the police and the prosecutors work hand in hand. Exactly. They give the prosecutor the evidence, the dirty evidence and the clean evidence and the prosecutors go with it. I saw that comment, uh, question somebody had about um, Detroit and Fort Worth. Is, is it the same or is it different? Fort Worth is actually different. Detroit's, I know they have previously, previous officers on there and um, some regular people like that weren't officers on there. What I know, um, they don't have um, binding power, I don't think. Either they don't or they don't use it for, for what I'm thinking of is oversight to use it for. Um, and Fort Worth, they don't have anybody that used to be officer or anything on the commission. Uh, they are looking at body cameras. They are doing policy around that, policy around their training, policy around um, use of force. Um, very proactive. Uh, the police commission in Detroit, I don't think they're going that far. No. 
No. And you, you yeah. know what, Allie, I, I thank you because uh, you can tell just by this picture right here that they are going out of their way to uh, engage in diversity and inclusion. Um, and at this point, because you want to make sure that you are encompassing the whole community. So you want to have the face of the community as the super supervision of this whole um, commission, you know? So um, I, I think we can learn from that. And it sounds like they are addressing the issues that the community has been raising. Yeah, and it's, I've, I've had a chance to talk with some of them and there, there's the pushback, all the pushback you can imagine. Um, someone was telling me they uh, put a policy for it to revise the use of force policy and three officers quit. Um, and just someone in, in, in New Orleans, Louisiana, was telling me about um, how they wrote a report up. And this was a police monitor, independent police monitor, wrote a report up of how uh, a cop racially profiled somebody. And they got all kinds of comments online. The union came after their personal accounts, which they do from what I've been learning. And um, they also, like, police officers in the neighborhood were, were like, hounding them. And um, this was a sheriff was the thing, like somebody that now is was running for sheriff and somebody, so they weren't like, it's not like they were somebody that never did. They, they don't care who you are. You could be part of them. You could be, <laughs> if, if you messing with them, I guess you messing with them and that's all they look at. Well, because it's a whole change of consciousness. Yeah. See, because when you call, you're calling this out you're calling a, a, a thought pattern, a habitual way, a behavior that continues to happen and you're calling it out. And when you call it out, those people was like, oh my goodness, that's me. I can't even work here anymore because that's just how I operate. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, because they just, they, like they have been able to do it so long and operate that way. Mm-hmm. Um, Someone's trying to tell them otherwise. Mm. Um, I, I guess I'll just end on uh, like sharing some resources. Um, so let me see here. Okay, yeah. Um, so um, everything I discussed um, and just like how to get it started, uh, model of it, um, questions that common questions, FAQs. And all these, all this information, Fort Worth, Arizona, uh, mental health related, um, related to environmental issues in prisons, police oversight, prison oversight, the data part of it. Um, the Invisible Institute, I really recommend looking into them. They're a great Chicago organization, but they did a uh, investigation, um, and I cannot remember his name, an investigation to an individual that was killed by uh, Chicago PD, and it's called, um, uh, what is it, six degrees of a second. Um, John a blank on name. I hate when I do that, but <laughs> look into them too. Uh, but yeah, all the resources can be found here. Wow. Thanks, Allie. Thank you, guys. Um, it's just so much. And when, when we're talking about accountability and uh, oversight, 
you know, when there is a board of where so many are uh, appointed, those appointed people have to represent the whoever they were appointed by, you know. And then the others that are elected, you know, they're supposed to represent the people. So when you put all the political and politics and all the other stuff behind it, I guess the people get kind of pushed out of the way. So I like the idea of having something that is community-based because that really represents the people who live in those communities. It gives them a voice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, having people that have been through it, people that look like us, people that are most impacted, previously incarcerated, disabled folks, like, you know, that's who we got to get on, like, these kind of commissions when these things are created, because having just a police commission and just review it, 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 I wouldn't want to sit on a commission or sit on a board and just repetitively review things and not be able to do anything. Not be able to do anything, yeah. Yeah. I just feel like, it just feels so, like, disrespectful, like, have to just look at it and say, well, all right, then, move on to the next one. Like, no, (laughs) no. We can't just move on to the next one. We have to help them. <laughs> right. Oh my God. Um, oh, okay. So it was called um, the Invisible Institute of Investigations. It was the killing of Harriet Augusta, Chicago, six durations um, of a second. But they did an investigation into his killing. And um, I think the verdict. Mm, it's going to be decided soon or has just recently. But very powerful investigation. Um, the civilian oversight COPA of Chicago got involved as well, and, and they incorporated some of that in their investigation. But it really shows how the community needs to be involved in investigating and, and holding people accountable for harms like that. I say people, just as accountability is a people thing. We all should be held accountable. And this is an example of how the, communi- the community did it. Um, and it, it shows all scopes, not just the police perspective that we see, make it to create. It shows police perspective, community perspective, um, the day of perspective, um, you know, during protests, the family, like it shows every part and, and they make the investigation. We make the investigation, we make the verdict. Um, so I'll end with that. Um, so my question to the panel is, how, how can we go by, um, how can we go by to making accountability happen? Anybody can just jump out there. Well, can, can I say this? Yes. Um, <laughs> w- one thing we can do is realize that we do have a system that's set up in state government for accountability for members of the legal profession. Let me let me tell you how easy it is for any of y'all to get me if you want me bad, okay? Let me let me let me tell you. They have the Attorney Grievance Commission, okay? Uh, I've had contact with them in the quest to regain my law license. And let me tell you something. Those <laughs> those people, and I don't want to overgeneralize, are believers in where there's smoke, there's fire, (laughs) okay? So what I'm saying is 
those people are not pre-programmed to say whatever complaint against an attorney that comes into their office is BS, is just somebody that is just blown off smoke. Unlike the police uh, internal investigation affairs, who I personally believe from 40 years of criminal defense work tend to blow off complaints against police that are filed with them and well say well we're going to have the lieutenant look at this or the the, the internal <coughs> affairs unlike what you see on television law and order i don't believe there's this sweeping uh mantra of why would this citizen be saying this if it wasn't true i believe the mantra is this is all bull whatever and this person is mad because their son got arrested or you know they got caught with some marijuana and they're trying to say the police called him a nigger, and we know they didn't do all that because they wouldn't do that. So what I'm saying is we do have a structure with the Attorney Grievance Commission with people that are fully ready, willing, and able to prosecute an attorney, all right? And, you know, we've got a structure called the Attorney Discipline Board, all right? And if they feel the evidence is there, they are ready, willing, and able to sanction an attorney, including disbarment, I might add, all right? So what I'm saying is we do have a structure that at least can be somewhat of a model or encouragement where it's not we're going to go along to get along, okay? And even though that could put me in jeopardy as an attorney, having to defend myself against a frivolous uh, allegation against me, I will gladly do that to maintain a system of accountability. Gladly do it, okay? So, you know, uh, be encouraged because there is somewhat of a role model, not perfect, but at least a template of, of absolute accountability is there. Um, Mr. King. I mean, that's that that adds on to what Tia was saying that we, yeah, we, we and what, what uh, Brother Mack has just said, we need that some, that's a real oversight board of the police department. I mean, you know, citizens and citizen boards don't have criminal powers, but I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready to go all the way. You know, have removal powers. You know, this. You know, no. There's no good reason why any one officer should have a history. You remember Eugene Brown, who had a history of shooting unarmed black men in the '90s, and he got promoted up to the ranks, and he, there was no accountability. Same thing with wrongful convictions. There should be no good reason why an officer who has a, a pattern of, of of getting defendants to falsely confess, or you know, just totally abusing his power to get a conviction, should should not be removed. If you don't want to remove him criminally, remove him civilly. So same thing like with the attorney grievance uh, uh, process. You know, attorneys can get disbarred. Um, medical treaters can get disbarred. Well, Detroit police officers are not members of the bar, but there's there's a solution to this. They need to be removed if they have these this historical pattern of abusing citizens. Yeah, like in a bad relationship. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And here's another thing. And Hugo Mack, you probably know this. Um, there's also, I heard there was a there was a bill in the legislature, if you will, and this is another problem. The the this there's a I wouldn't I don't want to call it a secret operation, but police personnel files are not discoverable. Yeah. They're not discoverable. 
I'm talking about internal affair records. You can't get them. It, 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 you can't get them in under FOIA, and you can't get them under. I, I think you, you could you could probably get them produced in civil litigation under a protective order. That needs to change. How how is the public going to be informed and know of that that that, that a certain officer has a has a has a history or a pattern of misconduct when we can't even look at their personnel records. I don't want to know his address and his wife, and I don't want to know all of that. But that needs to change. I think un, it, it, under FOIA, you can't even get their personnel records. They're too protected. Police are too protected. Exactly. You know, when I was down at uh, at uh, Frank Murphy with my son, and the lawyers down there, no, no. And the judges know the police officers that lie. They know them. I had a lawyer to tell me these guys lie all the time. Everybody down here know. But then, you know, when people are coming down here from these cases, you don't know. This average citizen doesn't know these guys' history, but everybody else knows and nobody does anything about it. How can that? B, if these guys is known liars, they they set up, you know, people, they're known and still it's just a conversation amongst each other. Oh, these guys lie all the time. They're known down here. You know, how is that justice? Yeah, it, you know, it's 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 not justice. And and I think it's time for us. We keep talking about the report card, but we gotta. I'm gonna, I'm gonna talk with you, Jay, this week, so we can start to organize and and Ali, so we can and and Attorney Mac. I mean, Abdul, we need to make it one place, a hub, so people can go ahead and put the report cards, how they rate their leaders especially the ones that we have to vote for. Um, give them a grade. Give them a grade. No one else is supervising them. Right. Give them a grade. You know, and if they get an F, we need to talk about, you know, people need to begin to voice what has happened. You're here, Jay, and you've been voicing what happened. So many people are silent. They're suffering in silence because they're afraid. But our fear, fear will not change the situation. No, the, the Look, the squeaky wheel still gets, gets the, the oil. oil. Yeah. So we got to squeak and we need to squeak loud and keep squeaking until there is change. You know, and we got to find out those representatives who are talking um, against the immunity. We need things in place. We need representatives who are talking about accountability. Who are they? Let's, let's talk about them. So people know how to vote. Because right now. <laughs> you see the numbers, you see who's in the polls. Yeah, some of them don't know. <laughs> Yeah, they got to vote, like vote, get, like, put pressure on these politicians to, to actually talk about this stuff, because they won't willingly talk about this. Policing is one they will not willingly talk about. Now, you know, prisons, they'll talk about that. They'll talk about that because, you know, 
for you to, uh, to think that the prison system is saving our humanity just sounds crazy. It's not. So of course they're gonna mostly agree with that majority of them. They're gonna agree with that. But when we talk about police, that is one that a lot of people don't talk about. They're afraid of their political career and they're afraid of, and it's just like, okay, because they, you know, they might want to be endorsed by them. I'll just be real. That's why they don't want to talk about Yeah, the so money. You got to put that pressure to know where they stand. Ask them that. You will know where they stand when you ask them that question. Yes, the Detroit Police Officers Association is a powerful lobbyist. Exactly. Mm hmm Another thing, when you were talking about the legislators, I see people loading up their vans going to Lansing to take selfies with these legislators and asking for money to fund these conviction integrity units. And instead of just the legislators telling, you know, the, the citizens, you, you know, we don't have the statutory power to fund conviction integrity units. A prosecutor's budget is fixed by law to receive her funding from the county executive. Legislatures aren't telling these guys that. They're going up to Lansing saying, you know, that this is a good movement. It's for the right cause. And, you know, won't you? Oh, we'll, we'll, we'll think about it. Well, yeah, the legislature can, I guess, you know, pass some laws or amend the laws to fund a conviction integrity unit. But they're not just going to open up their pocketbooks and do it, no matter how many people get out of prison on, on, that are innocent. Because, a pro again, a prosecutor's budget is fixed by law to receive her funding from the county executive. And that's why the CIUs need to be separate from the prosecutor's office, because then they can have a different kind of funding. <laughs> then be in the same office as the office that prosecuted you. I mean, that's just my um, ideal, of my, my two cent on it. But it would seem like that would be more logical for it to be independent. It would be outside of that office and mm -hmm. get funding a different way from them. And then you won't have to be going and begging somebody else for money when they get money from the same entity that puts you in prison wrongfully. Exactly, like, exactly, right? Like, that's where I fall on um, police-led youth programs. Detroit has a lot of those. And not just Detroit, but um, there are multiple cities. Philadelphia it, it has those. They have police-driven youth programs, police-driven alternative youth programs. So if they put a little spin on it. <laughs> so they're trying to get you to not be incarcerated, right? Have going to alternatives, but the police is running that. How does that even seem logical when the school to prison pipeline is about police being in schools, 13-year-olds going to jail and stuff? Right. Why, why do they keep inserting them when there are peer specialists, support specialists, behavior therapists, mental health psychologists, there's a shortage of behavior therapists. Like there are people looking for those jobs and they just keep not going to the experts. It seems purposeful, like they're doing that on purpose and it seems disrespectful. Kids should not be going to police officers for mental and, and physical disability related issues. There's people for that and they're essential. You wanna call police essential? Mental health workers are essential too. Physical health workers workers are essential. So let them be essential for these kids. Right, because um, we have been programmed to, be to believe that police have, have all the answers. And so 
Um, you put them in place, but mental health is criminalized instead of normalized <laughs> that, you know, your brain is sick or your head is sick and you need some help, not criminalized. And that's why we have so many sick people in prison um, today and they're not getting help that they need because they're in an institution that wants to keep the revolving door open. So we have to, you know, uh, when we look at uh, prisons and things like that, every a lot of people figure that's the fix-all. Lock them up, lock them up. Well, we've been locking up people for hundreds and thousands of years, and, and it's, it hasn't stopped crime. So that is not the answer. So when we are looking at all these things, we need mental health. We need, you know, people to be able to able to read. So we need education. We need, you know, we need people to be able to um, house themselves, um, take care of themselves. So that's, you know, getting them out of poverty. All these other things are more answers will probably help the numbers other than just throwing people somewhere and locking them up and throwing away the key. Yeah, and they've done the studies, you know, there's studies out there that show as communities increase in literacy, then the crime rate goes crime down. Crime goes down. You know? And so it's just a matter of they don't want to choose that route. Because there's a few people who are gaining economically due to masses of people who are hurting. Mm -hmm. And economically, socially, in so many different ways, while just a few people gain from their disadvantage. Right. That's the people who are getting benefiting off of free labor. Mm -hmm. That's like, uh, you know, that's the, yeah, that's the, the big thing. Like, we get past this, then we can get to that. Who's benefiting from this? We can get to that, but we gotta just this first come together first on this first to get to that, and, and that's why I push so many activists who focus on, say you know, say immigration rights, say um, ICE facilities, say uh, you know other things, war, the, the things happening in Ukraine, like it, this is terrible stuff it's happening everywhere. It's so sad. So like I tell activists all the time. We need to unify on um, what's happening to Black people because an being anti-Black is not just an American thing. That is something universal. And if who's most impacted isn't free, then nobody is. And our struggles may not be the same, but there are links. And where there are links in our struggles is where there are other people of color and non-POC um, and Black people need to show up. Like this, where you should be, because by not showing up, you know, it harms your movement. ICE detention centers are owned by the same people, prisons that own the same prisons. There's links. So we got to all come together to fight that bigger problem. Exactly. But first, you know, that's why we're here to change these narratives um, to rattle the brain to get people to think. We're not trying to impose what we're saying on anything on anybody, but we just really want you to think. And if we get you to think, then you can be open up to different possibilities 
and see things a, a little bit different from a different perspective. But if you stay locked in the cycle of uh, how they've been doing things, um, you, you won't ever see anything new because you're kind of stuck in that same old cycle. Um, Mr. Adu, you want to say something? Um, not at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> I thought you was moving around to say something. Attorney, you go back. <laughs> I wanted to say this. And many times you hear a lawyer say, I only want to talk for a minute. Run out because you're lying. So, when I, when I, but, but I'm... No, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. No, I want to say this. From my own penitentiary experience, the lack of accountability is highlighted even more for people that are incarcerated, okay? Because within the Michigan Department of Corrections, they have a facade of being able to bring a grievance against uh, a corrections officer, okay? When I say a facade, I mean it's just like walking in sand, all right? You're moving, but you're really not getting anywhere. And so what I'm saying is, in terms of accountability, when you have a person that's supposed to be rehabilitated going into the, into the, into the uh, Michigan Department of Corrections, that means you have to give that man or woman something to be rehabilitated to, all right? You, you, you can't just put somebody in a penitentiary and say, we're not giving you the opportunity for rehabilitation. Otherwise, you're really just warehousing them. Is, 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 really, is really what you're doing. And so I can tell you, having filed hundreds of grievances against uh, uh, officers, uh, sergeants, lieutenants within the Michigan Department of Corrections and being resoundingly retaliated against by the Department of Corrections, okay, for doing so, there is no system of accountability because when you file a grievance, it's going to go to a sergeant or a lieutenant. That same sergeant or lieutenant comes in the building every day with that officer that you're grieving. All right? mm -hmm. That same sergeant or lieutenant gives orders to that officer that you're grieving. That same sergeant or lieutenant is the one who trained that officer to begin with. You understand what I'm saying? So that kinship is there. So. 99% of the grievances filed against officers routinely dismissed, routinely dismissed. But misconduct tickets filed against inmates, when I was in the penitentiary system in my informal study, over 93% of those uh, allegations for out of place or insubordination, guilty. No system is that good. No system is that good, okay? So when you send a message to somebody there's no accountability even within the penitentiary, you know they're not going to expect accountability or looking for a good way forward when, when they get out. So there we are. So I want to ask this question, uh, Lashonda. She put into the, um, in the comments. Uh, she's asking about Gerard being in solitary confinement. Um, he had, I think, um, I think a few hours, not really long in solitary confinement. Maybe it was a day. Uh, and that was because they, he went to, to the hospital to have an infusion. And when he came back, um, they confused him with someone that had COVID and they put him 
and confinement and the um, the impact. The whole prison experience has impacted him on a uh, on a level that he's still working and evolving from. Just the whole experience from the initial police um, uh, engagement to being in prison and coming home has been, you know, um, traumatic for him. He's starting to, and it's been over, he's been home now um, over a year, a few months, over a year. And so he's still finding himself. And we, you know, but it's, it's impactful from even the police stop, you know. If you guys really want to be honest, when you see those lights in front of you, you know, automatically it's uh, it's a trauma related to that because of all the stories and everything that the history of those lights. Um there's a trauma with that. So um it's still today. I mean he got pulled over got a car and uh, you know how the cars now because of the COVID they don't have plates they had a paper and he got he was pulled over and immediately he called me and you know mom I'm a sister. I just got pulled over you know and we had this whole conversation so I'm talking them down I'm listening to everything they let him go but you know it's just uh, a trauma just being black and being pulled over Yeah, I, I put some things in the chat, um, but just some of the, I mean, solitary confinement does not, and it's not the answer, you know, and they have studies that show that. And, but just some of the symptoms because of it uh, is anxiety, stress, depression, hopelessness, anger, irritability, hostility, panic attacks, a worsened, and this is the main thing, a worsened pre-existing mental health issue that you have coming out than you had going in. Hypersensitivity to sounds and smell, problems with attention, concentration and memory. Some people experience hallucinations, hallucinations, paranoia, Poor impulse control, social withdrawal, outbursts of violence, psychosis, fear of death, self-harm, and sometimes suicide. They have these studies. They still do the practice. You're right, Ramtia. <laughs> That's why we talked about seeing the humanity in each other last week. Because yeah. when you when you see when you don't see people as human, you can treat it's okay to treat them in, in a certain way. Mm-hmm. And even and that goes to what Ali's been talking about, you know, this evening. When you don't see people as human, you treat them a certain way. It's okay for you to beat on them and, you know, mishandle them and lie on them, you know. And until we can, um, that's a whole mindset. That's a whole mindset. How can you legislate a mindset? (laughs) Yeah, but that, 
You can't legislate a mindset, you know. How can you give work rules to a mindset? You know, they always say training. They need more training. How do you tra train a mindset? That's I cannot. A I can't with, with the training as a solution. Can I just say that? I just say that. The training, oh, we did training, racial bias training. We did racial, I feel like everywhere in 2020, 2021, tried to say that, and you said it was a solution. We went to the NAACP. Livonia police said that, thought everything was all good. That's not a one, that's not a fix. You know, that goes back to the 80s, 70s training. It was community policing grants, you know, and that's how the prisons became populated. There was training grants. There's the escalation training grants. There's like all of it exists, and we are beyond that. People keep dying. It is enough. We need accountability. We need people. We need real accountability structures. Ones that revive people. Ones that, that don't just say you deserve death. Like you don't get to tell me this person deserves death because you just feel like no, you feel like it. No, that's not how it works. Like you just the current structure is just punishment. It's not about uh, you know reflecting on things you've done and and how you've harmed others and how you've harmed yourself. Um, healing and and that's not accountability that's just wanting you to hurt what we have now just wants to hurt your pain and, and no one's going to get better and rehabilitate who would want to do better if we just keep inflicting that on people so of course crime rate is going to be up the, what they deem crime of course that's going to be up of course people are poor of course homelessness is still a thing right Valeria says you can't train or change someone's heart. But you can hold them accountable. And you that's need these policies. <laughs> exactly. You know, on the on the subject of holding uh, officials accountable, I, I you know, I want to share this idea and and this and Tia described the conditions of confinement in prisons to a T. And I don't know if it's still this way, but it was even worse for female prisoners here in Michigan's prisons. Mm -hmm in the past 30 years. In the 90s, the United Nations Human Rights Council had issued a scathing report against the Michigan Department of Corrections about the systemic abuse and rape that was going on in the women prisons here. In the men prisons too, but it was their, their, their investigation was, was specifically against uh, the, 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 the female prisons here in Michigan. And there was, the, there was widespread abuse of these women prisoners. And there was a class action lawsuit. Deborah Gordon was the plaintiff's attorney. She filed against the Michigan Department of Corrections and got a multi-million dollar verdict against them for what the, 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 un, the, just the disturbing abuse that was going on against the women prisoners here in Michigan. And what did the legislature do? Now we're talking about accountability. What did the legislature do? This was in 1999. The Michigan legislature called an emergency session in response to the Michigan Court of Appeals decision that gave the women the green light to go ahead and sue and repealed the state's Elliot Larson Civil Rights Act that exempted prisoners from the protections under the civil rights laws because they were not citizens, they were prisoners. So they carved out an exception to the Elliot Larson Civil Rights Statute. And to this day, that still holds. 
Now, you can you can sue for federal civil rights violations in federal court, but state prisoners cannot sue for civil rights violations and uh, what these women went through and even the male prisoners in state court now, thanks to the Michigan legislature. The same legislature that the that everyone's going up there <laughs> to Lansing and asking for them to join the wrongful conviction movement. But, you know, there's something else they did were wrong, and that's what they did in, in response to that. It was a reactionary, it was it was a reactionary new move by the state legislature. So what they did was basically gave correction officers a green light to continue raping women by carving out these protections under the state's Elliott Larson Civil Rights Act. And it's still a law today. So state prisoners have no civil rights under state laws. They have to go, you know, and they do. You, 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 you have to go into federal court to sue under federal law. So this is what happened, and 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 and, and, the, and the crimes that were committed against the women prisoners were just—it was horrible. I, I have a copy of the report. I I printed it in in, in in the Human Rights Commission's report, and so again, we're talking about accountability. The legislature needs to step up also and and get involved in some of these reforms and restore the rights to prisoners who have a viable legitimate claim of a civil rights violation. I was I, that was I was very upset at the legislature for reacting the way they did and these women's claims were viable. But what the legislature was said was our state civil rights laws were are, were were intended to protect the public and they are not really members of the public. Yes. But they're, but they're the most vulnerable. Hello. <laughs> they're the most vulnerable and who would be better protected under the civil rights laws than people who like prisoners are. Exactly. And I know that means that they, they don't, they're not even criminally. So I want to, I want to tell people that under, when you research this stuff, they have coined rape in the prisons against women who are prisoners. They coined it as forced pregnancy. They say forced pregnancy. I say rape. It is rape. It's rape. It is, you know, it, it is rape. Um, you know, um, the case I'm talking about, I remember the case name, and you could probably even Google it if, if anyone's interested in reading the opinion, was a court of appeals decision. Decision is Neal, N-E-A-L versus Michigan Department of Corrections. That was a class action lawsuit in the 90s. And um, it's... Yeah, you said they said it's called what? Forced? Forced pregnancy. Forced pregnancy. Yeah. Well, you know, it takes two. Okay. And women really don't have a say in the matter, right? Because you, your, your life will be a living hell if yeah. you don't submit. Hello, wait a minute. That's even state law under our... Uh, in, in civil law for sexual harassment claims, it's called strict liability for an employer. If you, if you're a supervisor and you your subordinate is a female and you make a proposal to her and she submits, and you you don't have you can't say consent was a defense, not under sexual harassment. She she was a subordinate, so you made her accepting or rejecting your sexual advances as a term and condition as a, as a term and condition of employment. Well. It's, it should be no different in the context of a prison environment. Because you're under the state protection. So if you're under the state protection, because you can't go anywhere, the state is your, you know, has you, right? 
So aren't they supposed to be protecting you? You would think. Well, they took rehabilitation out of incarceration. So it just it's just it, it's a living hell. It's meant to, to to punish only. But the fact of the matter is we have to deal with 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 this when they're released on parole or something. So and 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 they should be, you know, people are redeemable. I still believe in that redeemable redeemable quality in people, no matter how how heinous their crime. Maybe I'm just um, the minority view. But the fact of the matter is prisons are breeding grounds for criminal behavior. You're graduating their criminal behavior by abusing them and psychologically torturing them and physically beating them and and just allowing all this um all, all, all this lawless, lawlessness to go on in the prisons and we in society are going to have to deal with these elements when they come back out here, right? Mm -hmm. So I I you know that that's a piece of history. I never forg I, I never forgave the legislature for doing that. And to this day, state prisoners cannot. You can be raped by a guard. You can't go into state circuit court and sue him for it. Thanks to the Michigan legislature, that everyone is, you know, all gun ho about that. Oh yeah, they're in with they're in with us on this wrongful conviction movement. They are not. They just want to take their selfies with you and promise you that oh we'll take a look at it. But they oh wait a minute, they just passed a massive crime bill by the way that gave. Police more money. Nothing for the CIU, nothing for these review units. Yeah, and, and then meanwhile, while we're going through a pandemic, uh, the governor signs legislation for them to swab your mouth for marijuana. You know, so, but they run on reforms and, and they make this, you know, I'm going to run on reform, I'm going to change this, I'm going to change that. And then you continue the cycle of criminalization. So you're right, it's really the uh, punishment system. It's not justice um, anywhere anywhere in it. It's just for punishment and not following their rules. And it's funded and we fund it um, by our tax dollars and, and, the, and people who are in prison funded by working for free. And people make so much money on this system and it's going to take all of us working together to change this narrative to make that change happen. And, and so they're still criminalizing the marijuana while our government and the powers that be are actually capitalizing on marijuana and still capitalizing on those incarcerated for driving while having smoked a blunt. Amazing. For a billion dollar industry. Exactly. <laughs> that disproportionately affects African-Americans. Yes, I was getting into that. <laughs> section, section 1983, which is the federal civil rights statute to, to go into federal court and sue for violations of your federal civil rights by state actors, guess what was enacted after the Civil War? And its goal was to, you know, punish the Ku Klux Klan for their terrorist terroristic behaviors and stuff well it, it, it but it, it it it's interesting that at you know they enacted that and you, you so that's your federal remedy today to sue for state civil rights violations in in federal court 
But the way the 13th Amendment was worded, and when you look at where it brought us today, it says slavery, uh, when it abolished slavery, said that except where crime has been committed. And look at the disproportionate number of people in, mich- in, 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 the, in, 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 the, in prisons in America today. They're African-Americans. So it just makes you wonder, was this really, was this really the plan? You know, you ended slavery except where crime was committed because was this really a plan to criminalize people for being African-American and, and for setting these impediments and setting, setting these ills in our society that was surely met putting African-Americans in prison? The war on drugs was a perfect example. It netted mostly African-Americans than it did Caucasians or anybody else in this country. So, so, yeah, that was the plan uh, right after slavery. <laughs> Nobody never changed the plan. It just kept going and evolving. It's nothing worse. Right. And so what they do is they give, the, they give prisoners, what, 17 cents an hour, which is still slave labor, right? Because, well, to keep, you know, if you do, if, we're not going to make it obvious that we're going to enslave you and not pay you a pay you a penny per hour because then there would be riots, right? <laughs> Nobody's going to do it. So we'll keep them a little bit comfortable and we'll give them 17 cents an hour. Oh, and by the way, when you get out, we'll give you a parole loan and 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 have a good day. So it 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 there it's a it's it's a it's a very sinister program. It really is. I, I you know it, it's meant to punish and torture and to graduate your criminal behavior to keep that recidivist door going swinging back and forth. Um, I saw a question in the uh, comments I wanted to get back to. I think Beulah had said the state of Alabama petitioned the U.S. federal Supreme Court to build two prisons with the bill back better federal dollars. Wow. Shameful. So on that note, <laughs> uh, we have so much work to do. So much, so much, so much. But it starts with, you know, opening your mind and changing your perspective because everything you see is not, you know, what you're really looking at. So um, to end this, uh, Attorney Hugo Matt, is there anything you want to leave us with? Well, I'm going to say this. In terms of the plight of the wrongfully convicted, I'm going to say it one more time. Elections have consequences. And I'm saying we have become comfortably numb. A hallmark, nobody picking on Detroit, but it's a fact. It's a fact. It is. Today, I hear about, you know, overseer, the plantation, white man on the plantation, running the plantation, you know, and all this stuff. But I see elections where only 10 to 17 percent of the people vote. So and, and you know, and, and I, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I'm, I, I've been through too much in my life. I've seen too much. I've been kicked in my face too many times for me to play games at this stage of the game, you know, and we don't have the impediments to voting that Dr. King and them had. We don't have that. OK, we don't have it. And I'm telling you right now, if they was giving out $500 checks, if you went down to vote, 
the, the voting records would be off the chain. You hear me? Off the chain. Yep. Mm-hmm. Find a way to get down there. We find a way. So don't tell me that. And, and yes, there's systemic racism. Of course, there is. Yes, there's you know uh, anti-voting legislation. Yes, there is. But anytime I can see a 75-year-old woman say, "You're not stopping me from voting. If I got to take three buses to get to the voting uh, uh, booth." I'm doing it. You ain't stopping me. So we can do it. So the first thing is with us, J. Love and, and, and Good Brother and, and Reverend Tia, you know, and Allie and everybody else, it's with us. We can change things if we want to. We really can, you know. And I'm telling you one thing. It takes one good election to get you a good prosecutor, get you a good mayor, get you some state representatives and some city council people. And, 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 and we can move the world, y'all. So so God bless you. I love you and respect you. Much right. respect. Love you too, brother. Uh, King? Well, on the issue of accountability, I'll say it again. I want, you know, I think the real solution is to put these cops in prison. There's already laws on the book that address that. I, I, um, certainly civil liability, but there the, the solutions are right there. They're, they're, they're at our, uh, in our reach. You know, so start charging them criminally. That's the only real deterrent. Otherwise, we're going to be talking about wrongful convictions. We're going to continue to hear about wrongful convictions until we start putting some real teeth and fighting it by, you know, charging these police criminally. That you and I would be charged for the same behavior if we did these things in these cases. Mm-hmm. So I want to start seeing them put in prison. And I'm not ashamed to say that. I'm not ashamed to say that because I trust them. I trust them to serve and protect. And I, you know, and, and I, that's all I want you to do. And 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 to stop profiling people. I see them, I seen police actually stop at young african-american kids in my neighborhood and i have at, at times i have spoken out about it and almost got drawn into some fire but I, I i didn't leave the scene i told him no i'm a witness to what you're doing here and i'm gonna watch and there's there that's not i'm not breaking any laws i'm not interfering with your job but i had a concern because i saw them walk up to for no reason what i thought was no reason but it was good enough for me to be a witness and because i might have to say do i might have to do some justice if i can right so that's what every citizen should do. You shouldn't be afraid of the police when you see them and you think that they're profiling somebody. Be a witness to that because you may need that help one day. Yes. Yes, I just wanted to say that. Um, let me put my thing back in. Okay. Can you hear me okay? Yes. Okay. Yeah, I just wanted to say that this is amazing. Um, I believe that we have to start from where we are right now. And we have to know that what we're doing. Can you hear me okay? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. What we're doing is effective. And it's progressing. And we can be unstoppable, you know. I think that we have to know that we are, you know. I know. Um, <laughs> but anyway, I know that um, that we are on the right path, and that it's going to take us being accountable to ourselves, 
accountable to our communities and and being truthful being truthful yes we have to go to the polls but go to the poll inside yourself first and and pick something decide on a matter stop be going back and forth because oh Yes, let me uh I have to hop off, so let me uh add it too. I'm sorry. <laughs> leave on this, leave on this note. Um I will say that it seems like a lot, but it's not it's not a lot if we all do it together. Um everybody wants accountability. And I know that because everybody wants to heal. Because when we heal, we all have help. So um we do it together, it's not a lot, and it has been done. Um, Austin, Texas, you know, on the same night that they revised the community union contract, they created a civilian oversight commission at the same time, um, took funding from the police department to towards another program. So it is happening, it can happen, and, and uh, we just have to do it together to make it happen. Yes, that's true. So thank you guys. I want to, um, next week. Trisha will be leading the conversation. We're going to talk about reform versus transform. Um, we're going to have a community conversation about that. And if you want to learn more about the garage wrongful conviction story, just go to www.change.org/justice-for-gerard. Sign and share the petition. And I want to thank you guys for joining us today. We really appreciate you and we'll see you next week. On see you next week. Thank moment. you for having us. Thank you. <laughs>